The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Uh, so we've been in a, a series uh, for basically this whole year uh, called The Story, in which we're going through the entire narrative of the Bible. And let me just give a quick summary of, of where we're coming from. Uh, so we're going to do a quick summary of the whole Bible. 30 seconds. Here we go. All right. So in the beginning, Genesis, God creates everything, and he says that it's good, and he creates humanity in his image. And he says, hey, I want you guys to be stewards over this whole creation. I want you to rule over this whole creation, and I want you to walk in perfect relationship with me. And so that's God's good design. But we see very quickly after that, Genesis chapter 3, humanity rebels against God. We fall into sin, and so all manner of, of sin and brokenness and death and destruction, all the terrible things that happen around us, fall into the world because we've rebelled against the source of all life and the source of all truth. But we see very quickly that as soon as humanity rebels, God puts together a plan to bring all people back to himself, to restore creation back to himself. And that plan involves a, a person. This, this Messiah, this person he's going to send, who's going to bring everything in right order. And so we look through the, the rest of the Old Testament. And again and again throughout the Old Testament, there's this promise that this Messiah, this King, this Savior, this Emmanuel God with us, that God's going to send some guy that's going to come and set the world right once and for all. And that's what we see throughout the Old Testament. And then the last few weeks, this past fall, we've been in the New Testament where we see that the, the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the real guy who walked the streets of first century Palestine, that he's the one all the prophecies were pointing towards. That he's the one through whom God is putting the entire world back together. That he's restoring all creation to himself and that he's restoring people to their God. And these last two weeks, though, we're really at the climax of that story. Where last week, uh, Pastor Barrett was here and he, he talked with us about the cross, about how on the cross, Jesus begins that work of, of bringing us back together with God, where he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, where he takes all the sin, all the brokenness that we've done, that we've committed, he takes it upon himself, and he goes to the cross. And he faces the wrath of God on our behalf. He dies the death that we should have died. And he gives us his righteousness, he gives us his perfection, so that when God looks at us, he says, yes, you're back in that perfect relationship with me. You're back the way things are supposed to be. But today we look at the, really the, the second part of the climax. There's kind of two parts to it, his death and then his resurrection. And so that's what we're looking at today, is that three days later, Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave, rose to new life, and now offers that new life to anybody and everybody who would receive it. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, but typically when you look at the story of the resurrection, you know, like it's like an Easter sermon, right? And, and typically you look at an account in one of the Gospels um, of the empty tomb, right? That the, the ladies show up and he's not there or, or the disciples show up and he's not there. And that's, that's normally what you do. Uh, we're, we're going to look at an event that happened the same day Jesus rose from the dead, but it happened a little bit later in the day. Uh, it didn't happen that morning, but this is an event that happened later in the day. And it's uh, one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible, the road to, the, road to Emmaus. Um, and it's about two disciples that are on a seven-mile journey. All right, two disciples that are on a seven-mile journey. And, uh, and so I wasn't sure if I was going to say it or not. So I actually, after this, I'm uh, flying up to Denver um, to, uh, to see the Green Bay Packers play the, the Denver Broncos. My brother got me tickets, and, uh, and he lives there. And so, uh, but it got me thinking, as I'm preparing this, and now I'm going to Denver, think of like uh, the time I visited my brother a few years ago, and he and I ended up on a seven-mile hike. Uh, so, so Melissa and I, when we first got married... Uh, we, we went and visited my brother and sister-in-law who were living in Boulder, Colorado at that time. And uh, while we're there, we're like, hey, you know, we're, we're right by the Rockies. Let's, let's go, go for a hike. And so the day we went for a hike, it was, it was 60 degrees uh, down in Boulder. 
but, but up in the mountains, it was 28 degrees. Uh, so we went up kind of not anticipating it to be quite that cold. We knew it would be cooler, but not quite that cold. Uh, and so we went up, and we just had, like, hats and, and coats on, you know. But I'm from up north, and we're like, we'll be fine. We'll be good. And we're like, it's just a two-mile hike. Like, it was just going to be a real short hike. So um, we get there, and we, and we get out, and we're going to see this waterfall. That was the plan. We are going to do the one mile in, see the waterfall, one mile out, call it good. And the park ranger had told us, she's like, hey, don't worry. The snow up there, uh, it's all melted, so you guys will be totally fine. She was a liar uh, because <laughs> we, we went up there and the snow was most definitely not melted. It was, it was seriously like four feet high. Um, and, 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 but fortunately, it was, it was so cold that, that it was frozen solid enough that we could walk on top of it. So it felt like Legolas for those of you Lord of the Rings nerds. And so anyway, so, so we're, we're walking on top of the snow and uh, it's Melissa and my brother and I. And we're walking and we're like, we're going to see this waterfall. And so we've been hiking for like 20 minutes. And we haven't seen a sign for it. We haven't heard it. Like, we're like, I don't know what's going on. This is sort of weird. And we're like, well, you know, I'm sure it's up here a little bit. So we keep going. Another 20 minutes. And we're like, man, where is this thing? We've been walking for 40 minutes. This is the longest mile in the history of the world. And, uh, and Melissa's like, you know what, guys? It, you know, the snow must have been over the sign, so we missed it. And the waterfall must be frozen. So I'm just going to go back to the parking lot where I guess we're just not going to be able to see it. It was a really smart move on her part. Um, my brother and I were much less intelligent, right? Like our male egos kicked it into high gear, right? And we were like, we said we we're going to see this waterfall. We're going to see this waterfall. And so we're just going to keep walking. It should be noted, like we had definitely passed it. Like there's just no way we hadn't, right? But we're like, we're going to see it. So let's just keep walking. And so we keep walking and walking and walking. And like an hour passes and neither one of us is going to stop because we're brothers, right? Like you don't want to look like the wuss in front of your brother. And so like we just, we just keep trucking along. Like we can't feel our hands. We can't feel our feet. We're just not talking at all. Like it stopped being funny. It was just like trying to survive. And then we seriously reached this point where the snow was not frozen as much. And so we'd sink like four feet in. And then one guy would have to pull the other guy out, and then we'd walk a couple feet, and then that guy would fall, and then you'd have to pull him out and keep going. And it was in that moment <laughs> that my brother Jake totally wussed out <laughs> and, and said that we should go back. And so we turned around, and we head back, but we show up, and we are in the wrong parking lot, like not the one that we left from. Now, this is what my head did, though. So, like, I'm just married. I've been married most for, like, three months at this point. And my head was like, oh, my gosh. We went to the wrong parking lot. And not realizing, like, oh, well, we're idiots. And that's what we did. Melissa went to the right parking lot. I wasn't thinking that. I was like, she definitely went to the wrong parking lot, too. But she's not here in the parking lot, which means she must be back in the woods trying to find us. And she's probably being eaten by a bear. And I don't know what I'm going to do. I lost my wife three months into marrying her. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Like, this is terrible. I can't believe I lost Melissa. She was totally fine. She went to the right parking lot, right? But, but in that moment, like, the entire trajectory of my journey changed. I still remember it was just like this sense of panic that I'd never had before, where I was like, I didn't care who could hike further, me and my brother, because I already knew I could. Uh, I was just worried about, like, am I going to wrestle this bear? How am I going to save my wife's life? Like, everything was bent on finding her and saving her. And like this one moment, the entire trajectory of my journey changed. I had a different motivation. I had a different purpose. I had a different reason, a different destination for where I was headed. And this is what happens in our text for today. See, these two disciples, they, they, they have a destination, they have a journey, they have a place that they're planning on going. But they encounter the resurrected Jesus, and everything shifts for them. Everything flips for them. Everything changes. In one moment of time, they have this massive shift of how they see everything. 
And in particular, there's three sort of core views that they have that Jesus' resurrection changes for them. Jesus' resurrection changes how they view how God works. It changes how the Bible works and how faith works. It changes their view on how God works. It changes their view on how the Bible works. And it changes their view on how faith works. And my hope is that the same would be true for you today. All right, so let's get going. If y'all would look with me at verses 14 to 21. Uh, Luke writes this, he says, And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not, does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. And so in this text, we kind of get a, a glimpse into the inner workings of how these disciples expected God to work. See, they thought Jesus was the Messiah, which meant they thought he's the one that's going to bring about the kingdom of God. He's the one that's going to bring about the healing rule and reign of God. He's going to vindicate Israel. And if we look through the Gospel of Luke, we see that these disciples have good reason to believe this. There's a good reason for them to believe this. Like, this is how Jesus talks about himself. Again and again, he says, I'm the guy. I'm the one bringing about the kingdom of God. For example, one of my, my favorite stories is about the time Jesus, he goes to synagogue, and, uh, and he was, you know, in charge to, to do the, the scripture readings for that day, right? So you think someone coming to church, doing the scripture readings, and Jesus stands up, and, and he reads from Isaiah, which happens to be about the Messiah, bringing about the kingdom of God, and he reads this verse. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he reads that text, and everyone's looking at him. And he says, oh yeah, that, that text I just read there about uh, recovery of sight to the blind, year of the Lord's favor, the kingdom of God coming through this guy, it's fulfilled. He says, it's about me. That text is right about me, Right? Jaws drop, right? Everyone's just freaking out. Oh my goodness, like, he said he's the Messiah. He said he's the one that's going to do this. And so we know this is how Jesus talks consistently through the Gospels. He says, I'm the Messiah. I'm bringing about God's kingdom, rule, and reign. And so when the religious and political leaders of his day nail him to a cross and crucify him and he dies, you ought to understand that is devastating for his first followers. That isn't the way it was supposed to work. That isn't the way God was supposed to work. Messiahs aren't supposed to die. Kings are supposed to rule kingdoms, not get crucified by empires. See, I think for us 21st century Christians, it's sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around this, right? Because we know the end of the story, right? We know Jesus rises three days later. But we've got to understand, for these, these first disciples, there's nothing good about Good Friday, there's no kingdom because there's no king because he's dead. And Jesus just ends up becoming another false messiah in their minds. And so these disciples, what other hope do they have? Leave Jerusalem and head to Emmaus and hope the true messiah comes. 
Because in, in, in first century Rome, Jesus was not the first guy to claim to be the Messiah. He wasn't. We know that historically. He just wasn't. Wasn't the first guy to claim it. In fact, there had been several messianic movements right before him. And they all ended the same way. The leader got nailed on a cross, and that squashed the movement. And yet, of course, somehow Jesus still uh, endures. And so what's interesting to me, though, is that these disciples, like, they think, all right, the movement's over. He's another false messiah. I guess it wasn't true. We got our hopes up. But then they mention that they heard these reports from women who had followed him, right? Just look, look with me real quick at verses 22 to 24. It's, it's mind-blowing. He says this, uh, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Now see, I think this is amazing. Like the, the disciples confirm, like, hey, we heard the reports of these women, right? They acknowledge, hey, yeah, these ladies, they talked to angels and said that Jesus wasn't there, and they claim that he's alive. And what's so amazing to me is that they say, they hear these reports, and they say, oh, that's cool. We're going to leave Jerusalem now. We're going to head seven miles and go back home. Like, I don't know how you work, but if I saw a guy die, and then someone came up to me and said, hey, guess what? Some angels talked to me, and they said that he rose from the grave, and he's not dead anymore. I'm going to check it out. You know, like, I'm going to try and figure out what's going on. But not these guys. They just leave. They say, oh, cool, that's interesting, and they just leave. Why is that? Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they check it out? Because God wasn't working the way they thought he should, and so it must not be true or it must not be worth their time. They don't get how God works. A commentator by the name of William Arndt put it, put it this way. The message of the women had startled them, it had not created belief in the resurrection. Such a thought was too remote. The empty grave is mentioned as a fact. The vision and message of the angels merely as something reported. And so what Art is getting at in this quote is that these guys acknowledged that these women said something. They acknowledged the, the facts. Okay, the, the tomb's empty and you crazies think you talk to angels. Okay, very good. But, but they merely accepted this report that the deeper reality, the deeper implications of Jesus' resurrection hadn't penetrated their hearts. It was just sort of historical knowledge that these women reported to them. And why did that happen? Because God wasn't working the way they expected him to. And so they couldn't receive that news. He wasn't working the way they thought he should. And so instead of heading to Jerusalem and figuring stuff out, they just leave and walk to Emmaus because God wasn't working the way they thought he should. And I wonder if we do this too. I wonder if we do this too. So I came across an article this week uh, titled, Dear Hipster Jesus. And uh, it, was, it was really good. It was, it was written by uh, the comedian Sarah Schaefer. And it was a really uh, honest article, really well-written. And, and Schaefer, she writes to, to hipster Jesus, uh, and she explains why she doesn't believe in him. And, and she explains why she, she uh, uh, doesn't trust in him anymore. And her reasoning is not uncommon at all. And so she, she kind of goes through her reasoning. And so she, first of all, talks about some of the, the reasonableness of, of the stories of the Old Testament. And she mentions, um, wait one second, Abby. That's a big surprise. The fireworks come. Okay, perfect. There you go. Um, 
Uh, and, uh, but, but she mentions kind of her, her wrestles with the reasonableness of, of some of the stories of the Old Testament. She says, man, no in the ark, like, come on, figure out the logistics of that for me. And, and she talks about like some of the, the, the harsher judgments that God has in, in the Old Testament against people uh, that rebelled against him. And she talks about some of the length of years that the Old Testament claims that people lived back in the day. She says, man, I just, I, I can't accept that. And then she gets into bigger sort of philosophical issues. And she says, I, 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 the, the idea of hell is just too much for me. She's like, I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. And, and she gets into sort of what she thinks the, the Bible teaches, uh, misogyny and homophobia. And she's just like, I, I can't deal with it. And then she says this, Jesus, I confess at the end of the day, I just couldn't deal with these impossible policies I was being asked to tote. Now, I know, pastor, Christian pastor up here, right, I'm supposed to just sort of like rail against her lack of faith and talk about how she's a big dummy, but I'm not going to because I get it, right? I get it. Like those questions are real, right? Those are real issues, and I know that she's not the only one that struggles with those questions, that those are a problem for her, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for her for being honest and articulate about it, but here's the problem. She doesn't go far enough. She doesn't actually ask enough questions. See, she asks questions of the Bible. She asks questions of of hipster Jesus, but she doesn't ask questions of herself, right? She came through something in the Christian faith with the Bible, with Jesus, something about the way God works that didn't line up with her, that didn't agree with her. And what was her response? Walk away. Leave Jerusalem and head to Emmaus. Instead of asking questions like, could I be wrong? Instead of saying, could my culture be wrong? Could she, could she have asked, could I be misunderstanding what the Bible's saying? Is it at all possible that the God of all times and all places and all cultures might say some things that don't line up with me as a 21st century American and I just have to deal with it? Could that be the case? She didn't ask those questions. She just left the tomb walk to Emmaus. And so friends, I want to say to you, I'm not saying we can't ask questions. I think we have to, but instead of just walking away and leaving Jerusalem and heading to Emmaus, could we just check the tomb first? We just check the tomb first. Just just check some things out. Check to see what's true. See if it's actually empty. Could we see if God maybe works differently than we want him to? And we maybe just have to accept that. See, this is why Jesus lays the smack down on his disciples in the next couple of verses. Look with me at verses 25 to 27. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus says to me, he says, hey, listen, you're getting God wrong because you're getting the Bible wrong. He says, you don't know how to read the Bible. You don't get how the Bible works. See, the disciples, they assumed they knew how the Bible works. These are are good Jewish boys. They knew their Old Testament. They grew up knowing it, and they knew, and they said, all right, we know how the Bible works. We keep following God's law. We do what he tells us to, and he's going to vindicate our people. Our people are going to be justified, and we're going to be okay. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the whole point. And this text tells us that that he walks through the entire scripture and he says, this thing, this whole thing is about me. Everything in this is about pointing people to me. And see, friends, our, our culture, we have a temptation to sort of sentimentalize the Bible. 
to say like, hey, this book is, is really my moral compass, or this book is a, a really great source of things to write on a piece of paper and then put in a frame and then hang up in my living room um, or garden. And, um, and, 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 we, and this really is just a nice holder of traditions. And let me tell you, the Bible is all that. It's great. It's a great moral compass. It's got great inspiring verses. But ultimately, the purpose of the Bible, Jesus tells us right here, is to point us to him. That everything in this book is saying, you need a savior, you need a savior, you need a savior. Here he is. Put your trust in him. Put your faith in him. That that's the point of the Bible. And see, when you get how the Bible works, when you get that it's there to show you Jesus, you get point three. And that's how faith works. So in our text, Jesus leads these guys in the ultimate Bible study, right? It's going great. And they get to Emmaus and... Uh, there's one part of the story Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to keep going. And they're like, no, 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 stay with us. I've never understood why he's like threatening to keep going, but he does. So he does that. And, um, and they say, stay with us. He says, all right. And so he sits down to have dinner with them and he breaks bread. And then this is what happens. Verse 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. I'll get this. Earlier in the text, these guys mentioned, hey, other people have told us about the empty tomb, and they claim that angels told them that Jesus rose from the dead. But nothing changes for these guys, right? Jesus is, is literally walking with them for seven miles, and they don't recognize him, right? Nothing changes for these guys. They don't believe, they don't have faith until this moment. And what happens in this moment? They see Jesus. They see Jesus. They have an experience with the risen Christ. Their eyes are opened then and their hearts are burning within them. They've experienced the resurrected Jesus. And our text says that they then run off and they tell anyone and everyone that Jesus has actually risen, that he is Lord, that he is reigning, that his rule as Messiah begins now. And so it's not simply a fact that they assent to. It's something that changes everything for them. It's a new reality that's opened up. Their eyes see and their hearts are burning. That's what happens when you encounter the resurrected Jesus. Your eyes see and your hearts are burning. See, faith is not just about acknowledging the facts. It's not just about knowing what happened. It's not merely recognizing something as true. See, for us to have faith, for you to have faith, is to recognize what's true and to see that it absolutely changes everything for you. It's to see that Jesus didn't just die and rise again, but it's to see that Jesus died and rose again for you, for you, and that you are absolutely dependent on that and on his grace and on his power. That's faith, to cling on to that which is true to cling on to what Jesus has done for you. Here's what I mean. Uh, so last week, I did a funeral, uh, two weeks ago now, uh, for a lady named Desiree. And uh, Desiree's a lady, she's never stepped foot in our church doors. Uh, but for the better part of a year, um, our church has been involved in her life. You, a lot of you don't know this. She's met maybe a handful of you. Uh, but we've, we've paid her rent uh, for about four months in the last year. Uh, you all have, to be quite honest. 
Uh, she's had terminal cancer, hasn't been able to afford her bills, and, and she came to us. And so because of that relationship, because of y'all's generosity, which, once again, is just an honor to be your pastor, um, but because of y'all's generosity, I got to build a relationship with her and, and go to her place and uh, pray with her and read the Bible with her and share the gospel with her. Uh, and it was a really, really cool time in, in the last couple months of her life. And so when she died, uh, her friends asked that, that I do the funeral for her. And uh, at any rate, as I was preparing for this funeral, um, her friend who was with her the night she died uh, shared a story with me of, of Desiree's last words. So her friend who's with her is, is in the, the hospital, and here's Desiree. She's got terminal cancer, been in constant pain for the last year, tumors all over, so much so that she can't see out of either of her eyes because the tumors have, have blocked that. She can barely talk. It's like she's got like one inner jaw here, um, just rail thin, and she's just laying there with her eyes closed late at night, and her friend is, is just reading a story to her, reading her a book, and all of a sudden Desiree just starts singing, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves right, and, and starts singing all the way through, and then, um, and then she stops, and, and she's kind of a bossy lady, and so she goes, hey, you sing, and so she made her friend sing, and, uh, and her friend started singing, Jesus loves me, and then at the end of it, uh, her friend Tiffany shared with me that Desiree just whispered, Jesus loves me, this I know, and those were her last words. She didn't die right then because it isn't Hollywood, but, but those were her last words. Those were her last words. And friends, like, that's faith, right? That's faith. Like, like, like that's how it works. There's this woman who's in constant pain for the last year of her life, is completely dependent on strangers to pay her bills. She can't see. She can barely speak. She's lying on her deathbed, and her last words are, Jesus loves me. That's faith. See, when you've experienced the resurrected Christ, when you know him, nothing takes that away. Nothing removes that from you. And see, now her faith has become sight. She's in eternity with him, and that's our hope. That's your hope. And so, brothers and sisters, let me just say this to you. The same resurrected Jesus who appeared to the Emmaus disciples in our text today is the same resurrected Jesus you can put your trust in today who is present with you today. And so won't you do that? Let's pray. Lord God, give you thanks for my friends that have gathered here this morning to sing praises to you, to listen to your word, to receive your gift in the Holy Sacrament. God, you're present with us in so many ways. And I pray for my friends to just sense that, those that are in hard times to know that you're walking with them, those that are in joyful times to be grateful for your presence, for the new life we have in you. Lord Jesus, may we just know that you are with us always. May we put our trust in you. May our whole lives be headed towards you. I pray this all in your name. Amen.